blocks away, I got a visual on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third alarm? This is the working part. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the Alpha side. Welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Today we have Paul Rosen on the show. Always on the hunt for great Canadians. And Paul, when I saw you talking to Ron McLean on Hockey Night in Canada, I knew you were a great Canadian. Just want to give a big shout out to uh, my favorite nonprofit, Heads Up Guys. Heads Up Guys is out there helping men and women, and they're looking for answers. Hop on headsupguys.org. Some of their questions get answered. We're going to talk about the why around mental health, and we are going to examine some of the issues around getting help, reaching out for help, the courageous part of mental illness that people don't always talk about. Paul has performed at the highest level you can perform at when it comes to sport, has written a book called Never Give Up. He's a foot soldier out there helping people with mental illness, and he's got an amazing story, battled incredible adversity, and he's just an amazing human. Paul, what's the weather like in Toronto? I'm not in Toronto. I'm just outside of Toronto, about 45 minutes outside Toronto in uh, Sharon. It's, uh, it's about 10 degrees and rainy. Just trying to get back to a normal after uh, 13, 14 hour days doing the Olympics and took my grandson to hockey this morning that I take him. Uh, he plays Timbits at like 530 in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. He's, uh, he's six years old, so he's a good kid. One of my favorite memories in my life getting my son dressed at five and six years of age in his skates, putting him in a freaking car seat with his hockey gear on, wearing that Timbits jersey. And what's interesting about being a Canadian, every Canadian from where I live on the far West Coast to yeah. Prince Edward Island knows what a Timbits hockey jersey looks like. Absolutely. It was hard because the last two Sundays I missed, Saturday, Sunday, I missed practice Saturday and game Sunday because I was doing the Olympics. Paul, do you find a lot of people reach out to you because they feel they can just talk to you, trust you? Absolutely, especially in the last three years when people now, they, for many years, people just saw me as Paul Rosen, the, uh, you know, Rosie, the hockey player, the gold medalist, the speaker uh, with no issues other than, you know, the day-to-day -day issues. When they realized, you know, three years ago, my, my first suicide attempt uh, that I had many issues. And then when the door closed, I kept them to myself because, you know, I didn't want to burden the rest of the world that saw me as this larger than life, you know, gold medal goalie. So when that happened and I started going to NA and AA and, and, and uh, I spent a, a good time in the psych ward in uh, downtown Toronto hospital, that's when people really started to see that I wasn't just a gold medal goalie, but I was a guy with many issues and many demons from my childhood, started to really reach out and help people. And, you know, recently I, I had almost three years clean and sober. And, and the thing that people really can see from the inner strength that I have is that six weeks after being in a coma, I did a national broadcast for the Olympic Games for CBC to hundreds of thousands of homes and people just saw, oh my God, if, if he can rise above his demons and get help, then we can do it too. How does someone become an addict? Wow, it is the easiest thing in the world, unfortunately, uh, especially back 
when I was, you know, 15 in 1975, a broken leg, painkillers are prescribed immediately. Painkillers are the most addictive thing, in my opinion, in the world. I got addicted to painkillers and the journey went on and on and on. Nowadays, when somebody gets hurt, even if you can't get them from a doctor, they're so easy to get. The biggest problem, they're poison. You look at people, whether they wear a uniform, whether they're an anchor person for a large news network, everybody's got their story. So the question I have for you, it's the name of this podcast, why? What is happening when someone ends up in the psych ward? What's happening? Well, I, I think I was, you know, I had so many issues as, as a kid and a teenager, and I, I buried them down because I was the caregiver. I was the, the people pleaser. I was the guy in my family who everybody came to. You know, I, I worked in a funeral home for six years picking up bodies, and, you know, I, I was always that guy to the families who was helping, never helped myself, kept everything deep, deep down till eventually, you know, all of the demons came out and, and I couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, my family always asked me that question. Why, why did you try to kill yourself? It's such a, you know, people still have this stigma. It's a selfish thing. I never wanted to die, uh, Steve. I didn't want to live. And there's a big difference. I, I didn't want to die. I just, the pain and the demons were so strong that I just didn't want to be here anymore. But, you know, realistically, I, I didn't want to die and I needed help and I, and I got help. And, and for three years, I was reaching out. And, I, and that's the biggest key, in my opinion, is reaching out, getting help, talking to people. I let myself slip for a few days, stopped reaching out to the people that were helping me, that understood and got into a dark place. And now I try to every day reach out to the 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 support system I have. And that support system, what a lot of people don't, it's it's not, unfortunately, it's not my family because they don't understand addiction. They don't understand depression. It's my people that understand it. My sponsor who's got eight years clean and sober. That's what you have to do. And you have to set up, in my opinion, again, you have to set up a wall between the people that love you and the people that you need to help you get through. A good buddy of mine, I just gave him his 23-year cake, and he got me speaking in schools over 20 years ago. But he taught me early on as a firefighter, you know, to live my life 24 hours at a time. You know, he's been through the 12-step program, been associated with lots of people that have gone through the last door, which is a great organization in New Westminster. Tons of firefighters and police officers have gone through that program. And just through osmosis, I've lived my life differently because uh, I'm surrounded by recovering addicts who are friends of mine and I see courage in a different light and I hear stories a different way. But what you just said, I've spoken to hundreds of first responders who have had dark thoughts. And one of the things they say, the world would be a better place without me. And when people start to think like that, they are not thinking of hurting their family and their friends. They're just in so much pain and so exhausted. They just want it to end. That's 100%. You couldn't have said it any better. That's exactly it. Within the next couple of months, I'll have five grandchildren. I have three uh, children. I have a great family. I have great support. I have great people that love me. But when your mind gets to this certain place that you just cannot deal with the day-to-day -day pressure, the day-to-day -day life uh, situations, the last thing you're thinking about is hurting your family. You would ne If you thought about that, it would never happen. 
Because when I woke up this last time, I'm a, a, a three-time gold medalist. I'm, I've got, you know, my mask is in the Hall of Fame. I've been given awards by prime ministers. And then you'd think, well, he's in a psychiatric ward, strapped down to a bed with IVs all over him. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to make sense because my brain, I have a disease. And that disease has taken me down a dark hole. And I have to get the proper help to get me to understand every day, not next week, not next month, but every day how to survive. How hard was it to leave the hospital and go back to your friends? Is there a stigma associated with that? Oh, absolutely. Perfect story. My best friend of 45 years, uh, when I got out, the, the week after I got out, he said, okay, come on over. Uh, let's watch the Leaf game. Let's you know, have a steak and just talk, right? And I said, okay, but what are we going to talk about? Are you going to bring up what happened to me? He goes, well, yeah, yeah, I, I got to tell you what I think of you, how stupid this was. I said, well, then we can't. Like, I need you to just be my buddy. I need you to talk about the game, talk about, you know, the weather, but not talk about what I went through, not call me an idiot because I know more than anybody what I did. Now I need the help of people who understand what I did, who have gone through it, not family members that don't understand, don't get it and have the stigma of why would you try to kill yourself? It's an unanswerable question. And when you get that into somebody that's gone through this, especially when I went through the help I did in the psych ward, and it was phenomenal. The 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 uh, doctors and nurses and people, psychiatrists and and psychologists that I saw, got me to understand who I want to be, not who I was, not you know Rosie the Great, but how to live day to day. So when you start to let the the things creep in and people telling you how stupid you are and how selfish you are. That's a recipe for disaster. I know several firefighters that have been through care in the hospital. What advice would you give for someone who's about to leave the hospital? I would say 100% surround yourself with people that understand what you've gone through. And you have to put up a wall with people that don't, that people that are going to drag you down, that are going to say things to, to you that you are going to then question what you did, why you did, and maybe potentially do it again. The, the first little while, the first few months are critical to be around people that understand what you've been through. What do you do when family is not supportive? This is the hardest thing in the world because you, you love your family. You, you have to stop. You have to just hope they understand that you cannot talk to them. You cannot be around them until you are strong enough to deal with them. And there's still family members I'm not strong enough to deal with because they will say that one trigger that will get me back to that particular spot. And I don't think I have another relapse in me. Like I've, I've had a few recoveries. I'm, I'm very fortunate. The last two, you know, and I'll be very honest, it, it's in the book. And, you know, the first one, January 30th, 2019, it was Bell Let's Talk Day. Uh, I just watched a piece on Rick Rippon. And, um, and I, I just said I, I had enough. I took 35 Oxy-80s and drank a bottle of Windex. Now, I'm a big believer in God. I'm a big believer in things happen. And, and there's a step in. Uh, if we're not ready, to, if it's not our time, and that Windex saved my life because it, it, it made me throw up enough of the pills to get the paramedics there to save my life. 
this particular time, which was just January 15th, two weeks less than my three-year clean date, I took 35 sleeping pills. Before I went out and went into a coma, I wrote a gibberish piece on Facebook, like a goodbye thing. Don't remember anything from 11 o'clock to Friday night till Sunday at three in the afternoon. But a friend saw it, called my daughter, daughter called the police, police came in, called the paramedics, they got to the hospital and saved my life. They said two, three more hours, I was done. I was in a coma for 48 hours. Why did you take those pills? I was in a situation uh, that particular night and I was doing really good. I'd go into tons of meetings. I, I had like uh, um, almost uh, six weeks of recovery. I was feeling really, really good. And um, thing happened to me that triggered me that brought back all of the bad memories from my childhood, all of the bad memories. The book was a hard thing, uh, Steve, because we wrote, Roger and I wrote the book over 19 months. There was many things in that book that I buried for years. And then when I read the manuscript, all the things that happened to me in high school and my mom and this and that came back. And it just, that particular night, and I wasn't thinking of it, where the first time I was thinking, I had it all planned out. I wrote notes. I went in the bathroom and I opened my cabinet and there was a bottle of sleeping pills, which I hadn't seen in ages. And I just got triggered from what happened. I figured... There's no point, like realistically, why am I here? Nobody really cares, which is nonsense. And that was the end of it. I, I just did it. And when I, like I said, when I woke up in the hospital 48 hours later, restrained to the bed, um, I had what a lot of people say in meetings. I had a spiritual moment for the first time ever. And I, I reached out. I got out of the hospital Tuesday at one o'clock. I went to my home group Tuesday night, and I've been working extremely hard on my recovery ever since. I think spirituality is uh, the missing piece of recovery for people, not just for mental illness, but for everything. And I'm, I'm not a religious person. I don't have a strong faith, but I believe in energy. I believe in, but I do believe we all have a purpose. And I think that's where spirituality comes in. Once you figure out what your purpose is, one of the things that you're realizing and so many people that have gone through adversity realize that all the hard work, you have to do it. You have to do all the heavy lifting, you know, family and friends. It's great to have them, but you have to do all that work and you got to do it 24 hours at a time. That, that, I think that is the most important thing because until this particular time, when I got out, I realized nobody, nobody, no matter how much they love me could get me better. I have to do it myself. And, and my purpose in life from this point on, if I die tomorrow or I die in 30 years, I'm going to be 62 next month, uh, is to help the struggling person, man, woman, non-binary, doesn't matter to me, is to help that person that was in my shoes that doesn't understand how to get to that next level and get them then to understand that life is great life is livable as long as you get the help and believe in yourself and then from that point on know how to live day to day know how to survive day to day and when those bad thoughts come in snap them out immediately get help yesterday i had a bad feeling something happened to me i called my sponsor immediately it was handled instantly 
instead of letting it stew. And then, oh my God, I get those thoughts. You know, I, I could do an event where 500 people, and I've done over 1,100 events in 18 years, would tell me, and I'm sure you felt the same way. Oh my God, Rosie, you're the mayor. Steve, you're the best. I got your story's incredible. I love you, man. It's the things that we believe that bring us down, and that's the, the most critical thing is getting help and knowing you have to do it. Nobody else can do it for you. You have to, and until you understand you have to do it, it's never going to work. The last conversation I had with my own brother um, on the telephone was he was telling me he was going to take his life. And that was my first time I was exposed to suicide intervention. Uh, I'm in a profession where I've seen people take their lives. I've received several phone calls when people are at their wits end. Um, I've learned over the course of time um, how to be there for people. And sometimes it's not saying anything. It's not even saying a word. I've been with people where I phone the crisis line. I've just, and just passed the phone and they've talked and we get an ambulance and then we go to the hospital and then we go through that whole process. And it's, it, what's interesting about being a foot soldier for mental health is everybody's story is so different, but it's kind of the same. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. Very similar thing happened with my sister who I'm very close with the three years ago, I was at her house on the 29th of January. Uh, she asked me to stay over. Um, my parents lived with her. My mom passed away from cancer and I didn't know this till later. I left at five in the morning. Uh, the police called her the next day that I was in the psychiatric ward and I was teetering on death. And then about a couple months later, when I was back home and we talked, she said, when I left the house, she called her best friend crying. She said, I think I'm never going to see my brother again. Still emotional. You have an amazing story and you put it in a book. There's a chapter in my own book that I read about my mom that I cry every time. Rosie, how hard is it to write a book about your story? You know what, when we were doing it, it didn't seem that hard until, like I said, when it was done and I got the final manuscript and then we had to pause for three months because I, I went down a dark hole again, reading some of these things that, some of the things that were great that I accomplished, some of the things that were terrible that through my addiction and my mental health journey took me to, you know, my mom dying of cancer and I'm stealing her morphine and, and denying it to everybody. And then people thinking, how, what a person you are. But it's something that you don't even think of. We, unfortunately, we still have the stigma of the, of the, the mental health situation, of the addiction. Uh, and, and we think of it as the person under the bridge, you know, uh, a criminal. We don't get the fact that addiction and mental health and suicide happens to everybody that just has this dark demon inside them and 99% of them are phenomenal people. They just have a disease and we have to, like cancer, cure that disease. Well, our good buddy Brady Leavold there, you know, he's all ready to get clean, leaves prison. And within hours, he's back on the east side of Vancouver, yeah. right? It's, people don't understand. They can look from afar and say, look at that homeless person, you know, look at that addict. There's always a reason why people are on the streets. There's always a reason why people are addicted. And the one thing 
that people don't understand unless they've gone through it with a family member. My brother went through three recovery homes before he took his life and exhausted me and my sister. I mean, of course you love your family uh, unequivocally, but I will say it exhausted us. Like I had a, two young kids, I had a young family and I am chasing my brother around. Trust me, this has been a bumpy journey for me. It's not something I planned on doing. I have no business writing a book. To become a firefighter was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. To be on this journey of mental health um, is completely by default. I know people who have taken their life and my new survival skill over the last several years is I respect people's right to take their own life. They're in some kind of pain that they can't explain and I don't question it. But when I get a call to go help someone or do an intervention with friends or I tell the person it's okay. It's the first thing I say, it's okay. I never say it's going to be okay because I don't know that because I have seen it so many times where the outcome has not been good. But I say, you know what? I'm going to help you, but you got to do all the work. You got to do all the heavy lifting. And people are afraid of that. They're afraid they can't do the heavy lifting. They're afraid they can't do the work. What was your great support mechanism when you decided, okay, I'm here to make a difference. I have a purpose. What's your pillar of strength? Well, it's two things. My girlfriend who I met in rehab and has been uh, the rock, you know, both of us going through some tough times. But I think the biggest thing is understanding that I have an opportunity with what I've gone through with my journey, especially with the fact that I was in the public eye, that people can see me like Carrie Price and guys like that, that can see me as this. How could he have mental health or suicide issues. His life is amazing. He travels the world. He's got gold medals. He's got awards. He's got this, but they don't understand that we're all human beings. And I had issues when I was a kid and I had things that stewed and stewed and stewed. And yes, I progressed to this public persona, but inside that larger than life person was a demon that wanted to destroy me. So through that, I want people to see that all of us, when the door shuts, Nobody knows the story and we have to open that door and let the story out and help people. And that's my biggest, my biggest uh, adventure on the rest of my life is saving lives and helping people and showing them that I've been through it. I'm, I'm not cured. Like I'm always say recovering. I'm not recovered. I'm recovering. Every day's a journey, but I'm trying my hardest every day. I'm not looking at next week. I'm looking at today. And when I wake up tomorrow, I'll look at tomorrow. And I can, like you said, I can stand beside you and do everything I can to get you through that door. You have to do the work, but I'm not going to stand behind you. I'm going to stand beside you. And sometimes that's enough to help somebody. You have some childhood trauma uh, or you have a past that you're embarrassed or ashamed of. Google Gabber Mate. M-A-T-E. He is a trauma specialist and his focus is for people that are suffering from anxiety, depression, but he focuses on their childhood. And he believes that most people that suffer from trauma, it's instilled from the past. It's from childhood trauma. And when I wrote my book, I didn't write it to publish. In fact, when it went to an editor and the editor said, we need to publish this, I said, I need to remove five parts. They're way too personal. And she said, nobody wants to read a watered down memoir. 
I was a task force leader last year in the wildfires, a state of emergency, and I was up in the interior. Uh, I was a, I was managing several departments as a task force leader, and two people came up to me off to the side and said, "Hey, chief, can I ask you a question?" They wanted to talk about, you know, how confusing that was for them as well, and they had never, ever spoken to anybody about that before. And I found that interesting because I didn't think it was a very big piece of my book, but they found it so interesting that someone else was confused when they were a young boy. And I know that doesn't sound like much when there's people are listening to the show and they're thinking, well, so what? You were confused at puberty. No, I thought there was something wrong with me. But you know what, what you said about that with the book, my sister read the book and She's one of those people that can read a book in like a night. So she reads the book in the night. She knows we probably as good as anybody in the world. And she goes, there's 90% of the book. I had no clue. I had no, cause the book is very, very dark and very deep. And uh, she had no clue and she's my sister. So people now that are reading and are reaching out to me and saying, oh my God, Rosie, thank you so much for chapter 22. That saved my life. It's something that needs to be done. It was hard. Uh, it took a huge part of my my soul to put it out there. Uh, there's people that will criticize you and go, you went too far. Why'd you do that? The one thing I made sure, uh, Steve, that I did is I didn't throw anybody under the bus. Any story that's in there that could have hurt somebody, the story's in there, but no names. There was no point. When you publish a book, it either gets a lot of exposure or it doesn't. And in my case, my book was sitting in a publisher for a year and a female police officer took her life in Richmond and I just phoned up the publishing house and I want to do it. And I was an operations chief, one of the busiest fire departments in the country at the time. I was terrified of the exposure and my story getting out and how I'd be looked upon. And I talk about the stigma, but I was afraid of it. And when I push publish within three days, I was on CTV, National, CBC, all the big newspapers was terrified of what was going to happen. You know what's cool? Nothing happened. I got hundreds of emails and letters of thank you for normalizing how I feel. And I've worked very hard on being proud of myself. And I used to beat myself up, which most guys do. I, I, I spend a lot of energy promoting heads up guys because uh, when people are struggling, they can take a self-test on that website and it really does explain how you're feeling. Well, we're told our whole life that as guys, as big, strong guys, you know, we can't be emotional. We can't feel pain. We have to be strong. And, you know, what you said about with the book, that was one of the hardest things for me. I'm still, I, you know, I just finished working my third Olympics for uh, the CBC. And my biggest fear was they would find out and go, oh, we can't have him my moral clause in some of my corporate uh, events that I do, well, we can't have that. And it was the total opposite. Almost everybody that was in management re read the book and go, oh my God, we need this. This is incredible. I'm the national ambassador for naloxone, which now uh, our Ontario government just brought it in as of April 1st. Every major establishment will have to have naloxone kits there to save lives. Uh, there's so many things now that are happening. I'm going to be a part of the government's program coming up soon to get awareness out there on mental health, on stigma, on suicide prevention, because I'm a guy with a face, with a voice who's been through it, who's not just talked about it and said, it looks this, it's a, like a government official who talks about it. And 
says they understand it because uh, but has been through it and has been this close to death and and like you said about being proud i'd say probably in this last week i've looked in the mirror before i went to bed and said i love you i'm proud of you this is my own personal book that i kept you know i i send books out i personalize them but in my personal book i wrote to rosie oh my god you did it i'm so proud of you rosie god bless you you are great that's in my personal book and i read that every night I love that. That's awesome. And self-positive talk for anybody that's recovering from anybody that's coming out of a, a spot where they were down low in the hundred foot hole. Self-positive talk is one of the mechanisms to inflate your own tires every morning before you start your day. And I, I talk to a lot of people that are low. Find three things that you're proud of, that you're happy about. What are they? Before we started recording, you were talking about your grandkids. I could tell, you know, even by the look in your face, that's your love. That's your joy. You have something in your life that is special. Yep. And you got to remind yourself of that every day. Yeah. What's funny, I was driving my grandson home this morning from Timbits Hockey, and uh, we're playing the radio. I'm talking. He's going to be six in May. And he just said to me, like, my background, I'm Jewish, so he calls me Zadie. And he said, before I dropped him off, he goes, Zadie. And I go, yeah, he goes, I love you. And I said, I love you too, Zach. But it's that, you know, that little click in your head that this little guy loves you, doesn't know any of the bad, couldn't care less about anything, doesn't even know about the never saw me play, but he loves me. That's pretty cool. To me, a great leader, like a great teammate, is somebody that can handle every situation, can be that strong person when he has to be or she has to be, can take that leadership and put it aside to put their arm around somebody and explain and help and walk them through it. Not like point and tell them, but walk them through it. To me, that's one of the most incredible things, putting your arm around somebody and walking with them, not walking at them. If somebody was listening to this show right now who was struggling, what can you say to them to get them to tomorrow? Well, you know what, if you're struggling out there, I want you to understand that there are so many people going through and have gone through what you've gone through. I've been there. I've been there as recent as a few months ago. And sometimes you have to understand that there are people out there that will help. I will help. Whether you read my book or you call me, greatness is achievable by everybody in this world. And greatness comes in so many forms. And greatness for you could just be waking up tomorrow and realizing that I could get through this day. It's not about winning a gold medal. It's about what you can do. And I'll guarantee you that dreams can come true if you just believe in yourself. And you can't. I didn't believe in myself for years. As much as many people did, I didn't. But today I do because I allowed myself to realize that I am a good person and I am worth help. I am worth reaching out and listening and doing the work. And I'm telling you, it is so worth it. I think what you're doing out there is awesome. I think you're a foot soldier for mental health in a way that people don't understand when they're down low, that there is other people out there that can help them. And I, I would say if there's somebody struggling right now, listen to the show, call the crisis line. The most courageous people I know were struggling and they decided to help themselves. You know what? I still have a lot of those people in my life and I'm super proud of them. And uh, Rosie, I really 
I'm grateful we crossed paths. I love what you're doing. You're an inspiration to so many, and I wish you all the strength, health, and happiness. Thank you for giving me the vision of taking my son to hockey when he was six years old in his Tim Hortons jersey, because I forgot about that, to be honest. And you talking about your grandkids made me smile. And every day I, I think of three things that make me happy. And I haven't thought of that one in a while. You know, trying to get a kid in a car seat with his skates on and hockey yeah. gear is freaking hard. The journey that I keep behind when I do my test, that's a, the jersey from 2006 when we won the gold medal. Always wear my ring from, uh, from Torino when I do uh, my talks. And, uh, you know, I could close out with la one last thing is that saying, you know, that first step on this journey of life is being able to ask for help. That to take the first step in this journey that we're on, in addiction, in, in suicide, in depression, is to ask for help. It's the most incredible thing in the world. Thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate uh, what you're doing out there. You're welcome. It's been an absolute honor. That wraps up another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Thank you for listening and helping us crush the stigma when it comes to mental health. Take care. Thank you.